Jet Club strives to give you more with amazing monthly benefits like educational assistance, 24-hour personal health advice and medical assistance. Monthly lifestyle and rewards vouchers which include groceries, spa treatments, local travel, fast foods and uh, jet fashion vouchers plus so much more. All for just 46 rand a month. You can sign up in a jet store today and save 350 rand off your spending from the 30th of September through to the 3rd of October. With the Jet Club exclusive campaign, don't miss out on all of these amazing deals for the whole family from the 30th of September through to the 3rd of October only. Jet Club loves family. 12 minutes it is after 7 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. We kick things off in the world of money and power. Rela Suskin, Head of Research at Benguela Global Fund Managers, is my guest this evening. Rela, good evening and welcome. Good evening, Ayabong, and good evening to listeners. Thank you very much for joining us, Rela. Let's maybe start off with that big story today, certainly coming through from the banking sector, and that that, uh, came through from Capitec, uh, which uh, seems to be blowing the lights out there. Uh, Talk us through some of those numbers there, um, and also, I guess, uh, a strong showing there. We saw a double-digit improvement in the net net asset value, uh, and uh, I would even say, I guess, uh, three-digit growth uh, in some of the other measures as well. Yeah, you're 100% correct. I think Happy Tech had a very strong result. It's a bit odd why the share price is weaker today um, because I think yeah, most metrics did show to be very strongly. I mean, I think maybe just starting on the transactional side. So, I mean, something that continues to surprise me with Happy Tech is how they continue to grow their client base in at double-digit rates. So they grew their active clients by 15% to 16.8 million uh, customers. Um, I think a big theme this year with COVID was, you know, the, the, the switch to uh, digital transactions and mm. the digital users increased by 22%. So their net transaction income came in at 33%, which was very strong. And that helped to offset the, the loan book, which gross loans only growing uh, 5%, which is quite slow um, for Capitec mm. and possibly some of the reason for the weakness. And, and I mean, we, we know, uh, uh, Rilla, that they had some new initiatives they'd introduced over the last while. I mean, you spoke about the digitization. Uh, we also know they uh, had a funeral cover offering. Now, they didn't say much uh, in the summary of the unaudited results that they put out. But uh, just, you know, having looked at this particular uh, uh, stock, what do you make of how the new ventures uh, in the broader Capitec stable have performed and the role that they've played in this uh, um, you know, uh, performance that we've seen here? I mean, an 837% improvement uh, in their operating uh, profit before tax. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think probably one of their most important new launches was their access facility. So that's driving mm. their loan book growth. I mean, I think it's important to note that their net loans grew 7%, but, um, you know, their access launch, uh, their access facility grew uh, multiple times. And really what it is is almost a revolving credit loan facility Mm. offered at very sort of competitive rates, um, which really lifted the the, the sales of the the loan book. And... Let's talk about that dividend just for a second. Mm. Uh, you know, they did indicate and give some guidance that uh, they expect uh, to declare a dividend of 50% of headline earnings for the 2022 financial year. Um, I mean, when you compare that to, I guess, uh, any other dividends that have been coming through from comparable players in the banking sector, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very positive as well. They did increase that dividend payout ratio got into the 50% versus historically it's more around 40%. So they are paying out more cash to shareholders. 
and I think it was something that was almost expected. Um, uh, from one point of view, they've got a loan book that's growing quite slowly, but the deposits are just piling into Capitec. There's so mm. many people uh, that haven't had an opportunity to spend their money. They've got cash pay- piling up, and so they're you know, passing that on to shareholders now with a higher dividend payout ratio. Mm, mm. Now, now, when you look at a Capitec, um, mm. and I guess how... You know, their banking model. I mean, I, I must say, whenever I walk past any Capitec ATM, I'm always seeing a queue of people. Uh, but also you see a considerable um, number of people who might be receiving their earnings with a different player who, who would have as a sort of complementary thing, you know, a Capitec account, just largely on the basis of the type of offering that Capitec gives you and uh, much lower fees compared to maybe some of the other players. Is that still mm-hmm. their unique value proposition? Or I guess has that morphed into becoming that bank that is rather accessible? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a, a combination of both. I mean, Capitec's offering is certainly very cost-effective. And I think what's great about it for the border population is that their fee the way they break down their fees is very simple. Uh, if you look at the other big four banks, you've got like 30 lines of different types of fee structures, whereas, you know, Capitec simple, it's easy for anyone to understand. Um, and I think that builds trust among the broader population. Um, but certainly, you know, looking at the number of digital users there are, it certainly does you know, show a, a big young population that understands that sort of um, digital world. Um, and... Yeah, they're also sort of building out new products now. They're offering mortgages. They're offering business loans. So I think they are starting to attract a higher, a higher income consumer as well. Mm. That's you know very sort of financially savvy. Yeah, yeah. Let's just our attention away from uh, that particular story and uh, take a look at uh, H&M. Now they the uh, clothing retailer, and uh, yeah, they're offering now. Um, Creators, and when I say creators, that's anything from you know fine artists right through to you know a rock band or any anything like that. They're offering them on-demand printing uh, through what they're mm. calling a sustainable supply chain and global network. That um, yeah, I guess if you have uh, the order for one T-shirt, might be able to get to you in a very customized uh, rather than off-the-shelf offering within a few days. Uh, I'm trying to wrap my head around this particular one. Yeah, I mean, I think H&M, they're, they're very creative and looking for ways to really boost sales. I think they've had a, a hard year, and even though their results exceeded expectations now, you know, they still are behind where they were pre-COVID um, in terms of profitability. But, yeah, I mean, this is an interesting idea. So basically any sort of musician or actor or uh, sports hero can, you know, create branded products um, that really depict them and that their fans can support. And they don't, these artists don't have to put down massive expense. Uh, you can literally just order one t shirt at a time. Um, so it's also, I mean, I think it's fantastic for smaller kind of artists that are just getting, you know, started out and they mm. don't have the big capital to, to organize big lots of clothing um, from larger factories. Uh, so I think it also talks to sort of a new generation that likes things customized. They like unique items. Um, yeah, so just an interesting take from H&M. Just your own reading of consumer preferences, I guess, in, in the uh, sort of uh, uh, clothing and fashion retail space. I mean, is, is this a trend? Do, do people want a customized T-shirt that, you know, has been specifically made for me and, you know, I'm unlikely to see anybody else out in the street wearing it on the same day that I'm wearing it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you see it in some broader trends. Um, for instance, department stores have sort of fallen away globally, and those are always, you know, these these big massive mass stores with mass production. Mm. Um, and people are kind of favoring, you know, your your local brands. Um, it's in South Africa and in the rest of the world as well. So this kind of does fit into that. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, we also saw, I guess, you know, uh, the share price uh, moving in positive direction earlier on today. This on the back of much better than expected earnings that beat uh, some of the consensus estimates in the marketplace. Um, and uh, seemingly, I guess, uh, many in the market also expecting some return to, uh, you know, ordinary trading conditions. And, of course, uh, also a positive response um, due to pent up demand that might, I guess, maybe overshoot as we near Black Friday. Yeah, 100%. I mean, so they saw 14% sales growth for the period and really talked to higher footfall as COVID restrictions died down. I think they are still being impacted by COVID, particularly in the Asian region, which actually saw a continuing decrease um, in sales year on year. Um, and yeah, I mean, looking at the bottom line, it did beat consensus, but I think earnings are still lower than pre-COVID levels. They do have still some recovery to go. I think one thing they noted is, you know, they are being interrupted by um, the, the supply chain issues that we're seeing around the world uh, impacting all types of industries. So they're actually not able to meet demand because they're not able to get the supply in time. Mm-hmm. I want us to pause here for a second, Aurelia, while we take a quick spot break, uh, but we'll continue with this discussion on the other side of this. Sunlight dishwashing liquid is now even thicker with triple action power to remove dirt, degrease and shine all of your dishes so you can do more than you expect. Can you do more than you expect? Try to use your triple action powers to guess the song playing at triple the speed and you could win up to 5,000 rand in cash. Listen to the triple action on the morning flavor to stand a chance to win. Sunlight, more than you expect. For competition terms and conditions, go to metrofm.co.za. 23 minutes it is after 7pm. It's our wrap of the top business stories and uh, I'm joined this evening by Rela Suskin, Head of Research at Benguela Global Fund Managers, helping us to take a look at the latest in the marketplace on this Thursday. Rela, Slack is telling the C-suite to limit office time to three times a week to encourage other staff to work from home. Uh, And I guess I'm, I'm not surprised why Slack would want to do this because it then means more and more people have to use their tools, but uh, it does sort of signal and is quite indicative of uh, a changing type of institutional firm level and even office culture in many businesses, uh, at least of all in the services space, who are realizing that actually we might not need to be at the office five days a week and we might get get some productivity gains by having you working from your couch. 100%. Um, yeah, and I mean, as you mentioned, it's not surprising that this kind of... Uh is coming from Slack. You know, they're all about being online and digital and managing uh, project management online. So it makes total sense for them. It will increase their sales if they send that message into the public. Um, yeah, so I mean, they're saying that execs must stay, must be in the office less than three days a week um, and that the office should really only be used for certain sort of instances such as uh, 
team building just as a sort of a touch base or if you're just getting a project started. But you don't need to be in the office for, you know, everyday uh, sort of activities. Mm-hmm. But also, I guess, you know, we're certainly seeing many reports across the world that are showing that uh, there's been sizable gains in productivity on the back of, uh, you know, some people not having to take uh, a long commute to get to the places where they work in. Uh, once you've had your dinner, you can easily sort of get back into work. Mm. Um, so there's also been that sort of trend of, you know, people actually working harder than they did before. And I'm, I mean, I guess I'm also quite interested in, you know, for Slack, um, they've certainly, I guess, you know, seen a massive bump up in uh, the number of people using their uh, uh, offering. Uh, and that has a lot to do with remote working. Uh, where do you see this, you know, the... I mean, tools like this, uh, and I would add Zoom, Skype, many others, uh, you know, Teams to the, this. What's the next frontier? Uh, mm-hmm. And I guess, the, the, you know, the case of Sky is quite sad uh, because, you know, they, they were the go-to people for any forms of, you know, teleconferencing for a long time before COVID. And uh, it does seem they didn't make any good use of that first mover advantage. Yeah, that is true. Um, I mean, I think you saw a huge jump in sales for a lot of these companies for example, Zoom, that you mentioned. And I mean, I think the expectation is, you know, that growth can't continue. I think everyone's made that transition and, you know, extra sales growth will kind of be incremental. Um, but, you know, in that huge jump in sales, some of these companies have become great quality companies. They've got, you know, their customers are sort of locked into a way of using their system. Common with technology is that sort of switching effect. Once you get used to using a Zoom, you don't want to move to another type of technology, and so that kind of just becomes your way of life. Um, so I certainly think COVID has, you know, boosted these sales and probably will continue to sort of support the same level of sales going forward. Mm. You know, you know, it's quite interesting. I mean, when we think about many of these players that are effectively going to be services that uh, complement remote working or hybrid forms of working uh, and uh, I mean if you thought of this from a product life cycle perspective where are we maybe uh, in the development process um, and, and what implications is that going to have uh, you know for either the price leadership or cost leadership of some of the players that are that are operating in the space mm, sure that's an interesting question I mean I think this sort of new way of life has just begun and you know, I think we've seen the first initial wave of innovation that was out of necessity because we didn't have a choice. But I'm sure that, you know, going forward, there's probably going to be so many more new innovations coming through that just make life, you know, working at home a whole lot easier. Mm. It's probably just begun. Yeah, yeah. Certainly going to watch it quite closely. But uh, that being said, uh, what, what do you make of, uh, I guess, the... Um, a draft amendments that were published uh, or that are set to be published, I understand, tomorrow. Uh, but uh, there was a news conference yesterday uh, on the company's amendment bill, uh, which uh, will be released for comment for the next 30 days or so. Especially uh, some of your thoughts, I guess, on uh, you know the uh, provisions around beneficial ownership and also the disclosure of pay gaps within firms, mm-hmm. which uh, I certainly know you, know, uh, you guys at Benguela have uh, also made, uh, I guess, uh, some noise about in many of your investing mm-hmm. companies. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I think it's a great initiative um, that government's taking. You know, they're not getting directly involved in publicly listed companies, but they are saying you need to be more transparent so that shareholders can make up their minds and and be well informed when when voting uh, mm. for these kind of decisions. 
Um, so yeah, the, the draft law really says that companies now must um, they must report on the CEO salary versus the the average employee salary and also the lowest earning uh, employee salary, so that you can get a sort of a sense of that gap, which does allow us to you know globally benchmark it because it's a sort of that that income gap is something that you know looked at globally um, and. Yeah, ultimately, it is up to shareholders uh, to to raise their voice ar- ar- around these inequality issues that we see, you know, in South Africa, particularly, but it's, you know, it's around the world as well. And I think this, this additional transparency really helps that decision-making process. Mm, mm. And yourselves, I mean, as investors, um, does a massively large, relatively, of course, when you compare, you know, uh, maybe firms in the same sector, um, mm. Does does a massive gap between the top earners and those who earn at the bottom of the distribution, or even between the top earner and the median earner, uh, does that spook you off? Does that you know uh, unsettle you or influence your asset allocation decisions in any meaningful way? I mean, I think you know, sadly, it's something that's become quite normal. So you can't really differentiate between our publicly our publicly listed companies because mm. they're they're all reporting these massive gaps. So, you know, if you had to kind of exclude based on that, there wouldn't be any companies left to invest in. But we certainly, I mean, where we where we take the responsibility very seriously is when it comes to voting on behalf of our shareholders mm. um, and really, you know, where gaps are, are, are far too high or where the remuneration of CEOs don't make sense for the best interests of shareholders. Um, you know, we take an active stance in that. We write to company boards and CEOs uh, to inform them, you know, of, of our thoughts. We provide a lot of sort of empirical evidence to to, to the boards. Um, and it's something that shareholders need to uh, sort of increase. Um, and asset managers on behalf of shareholders should really, uh, you know, we've seen an increasing trend in it, but we... We have a responsibility to protect shareholders. Mm, mm. And then on, on on beneficial ownership, I mean, some of your thoughts on that. Uh, uh, the uh, department here suggesting that a lot of this is informed by, I guess, South Africa's role in the global effort to try and deal with money laundering and terrorism. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree, and uh, I think it's also it's certainly a positive a positive move. I think we were very excited about the the, the um, reporting around pay was probably the, the sort of thing that was highlighted most for us. Mm, mm. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, I guess there's also the the more you know vexing matter here, and I'd be interested in some of your thoughts on how you know uh, uh, there'll be a response to this. But this idea of you know also publishing, I guess, the names of some of the top five percent earners uh, or even the top uh, you know directors uh, by way of what they earn, uh, and comparing that to the lowest earner in a country as unequal as we have here in South Africa, is disclosure enough? Uh, is disclosure enough to prompt, you know, a more well, active stance on the part of shareholders? Yeah. Um, I mean, the disclosure, I think, is, is the first step. Um, and I do think it certainly does encourage action. Um, I, I think over the last year, you know, we've seen so many companies come to their AGMs and we've seen majority votes against remuneration policies um, at companies and it's you know the first time we're kind of seeing uh, this mass voting against remuneration policies ever. I mean 
on the top of my head. I think, you know, first round, old neutral, um, all their immunity policies were voted against in the past year. So there's certainly a shift in, in thinking, and I think this, this increased transparency just will sort of increase the rate at which that happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I guess, you know, the the other dynamic that I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on is that, you know, another part of the bill is around, you know, dealing with very onerous, burdensome, and, and at times very inconvenient reporting requirements that might be placed on entities that really have a very little public interest score, mom and pop shop, you know, in a mm. corner somewhere. Uh, your views on that, uh, and I guess, you know, how the existing company's legislation had uh, placed certain obligations on disclosure and reporting on entities mm. where, you know, those reports might be really immaterial uh, to the bigger issues or even, I guess, to to the price of sliced bread. Yeah, no, you're correct there. And I mean, I think, you know, to some extent, there's got to be different standards when it comes to small business versus big public listed entities where you've got other owners, you know, you've got public shareholders that need to know everything that's going on. Um, I mean, I think the one thing that the U.S. is very good at doing is supporting, you know, reduce the massive unemployment rate that we have and get the economy growing. So I'm all for sort of cutting down red tape for small Mm. business. Rella, we're going to have to leave it here this evening. Uh, pleasure catching up with you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Rella Ruskin is the head of research at Benguela Global Fund Managers joining us uh, this evening for our wrap of the top business stories.